Don't name quit the week. Telephone delight. Love is all I need. My honey be red, black, and green. Majestic queen. This for my homies. My homies say love. This for my homies. My homies say love. This for my homies. My homies say. Like maybe I'm an issue after autumn and all of the falling collars and ringers when singers hitting my telly and telly page and my beeper. The reefer got me like, whoa, slow down. I need a minute for minute's sake, a dinner plate, a Casanova with Cam- And welcome to this week's episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman. We are on Playmaker Mentality, the website that is still somehow producing an article about every month right now. But if you really want to find us, you can find us on iTunes, talking about sports, society, and stuff each and every week. We're almost at our year anniversary of this, which is kind of crazy. I'm hoping to do something pretty special for that, so stay tuned. But this is also a really, really unique episode. Uh, I'm very lucky to have someone really great on the podcast. He is a reporter for The Hill in D.C., and he's been covering this presidential election. Uh, and he's someone who I knew a very long time ago. We grew up together, and we sort of lost touch. And now it's cool to to have you back, Ben Kamisar. How are you doing? Yeah, no, I'm doing well. I'll say I reserve your judgment on really cool guests and all that praise until the end, but uh, I guess we'll see how it goes. Well, I'm very excited. I think this is going to be a great podcast. And before we get too deep into it, uh, I just want to – Make the disclaimer uh, to anyone listening that, you know, we, we get pretty opinionated on the Hammer Time podcast, and every week, including whenever we talk, we, we like to inject whatever we're thinking into the conversation. Um, what I'm really going to hope to convey this week is what it's like to cover an election from the sort of bird's eye view perspective. So that's what the society portion of this podcast is going to be like, just so... Everyone knows from the get-go, set expectations. I just like doing that because I don't like lying to listeners. Listeners listen for a reason. I want to make sure you know what you're listening to. But we're going to start by talking about sports. And you have a pretty interesting selection of teams you like, especially because you grew up in Connecticut. So how did you develop your fandoms overall? It's the Midwestern purple teams is uh, is where I go. Now, um, for football, my team's the Vikings. I um, remember, you know, like my early – childhood growing up has been my father's a Vikings fan. So, you know, my first really football memory, um, for the most part is, uh, you know, sitting in a, in a bar, um, actually in the, in the town that we grew up, um, watching the Vikings game, uh, the Vikings, the NFC championship that year against the Falcons it was like 98, I think it was. And, uh, you've got this, I mean, for, for those of you that aren't Vikings fans, this, this isn't just like, you know, terrible, um, burned into your mind like it is for me, but you know, Game's going on and, uh, it's getting up to the end of the, the end of the game. It's, uh, Gary Anderson's our kicker, hasn't missed a kick all season and he trots out for the game winning field goal in 98 and the announcer goes, and Gary Anderson coming out. This, he hasn't missed one yet. The Vikings are going to the Super Bowl. And my dad looks at me and he goes, Oh God, we're going to lose. And I go, No, we're not, dad. And I like repeat the lines, you know, Gary Anderson's the best kicker in the league. And my dad says, No, no, he jinxed it. It's over. Sure enough, Gary Anderson kicks the, uh, misses his first kick of the season and the Vikings go on to lose. And that pretty much set me up for, um, a, a lifetime of my fandom, basically. Wait, I need to know which bar in Sanford was this? This was, it was uh, Bobby Valentine's bar, the of former course. Mets, uh, manager. Yeah, Bobby V is the, actually, I believe ESPN named it one of the five best sports bars in the country, which is really? kind of crazy to think about, but, when you consider that Bobby tends to be there a lot, and it's a really, really nice bar. Oh, yeah. I, I, mean, I remember sense. I ran into him there a couple times as a kid, but that said, I don't think I've been there in 15 years. So for all I know, like, the, the fact that it's open is a shock to me. I have no idea. I remember I was visiting Stanford. I feel like it was, like, after my freshman year of college. And me and my dad, um, we were doing some, some bonding time, went to Bobby V's, and he was there, and... I think that my dad forgot who he was for a second, so he just sort of like was like, "Oh wait, who are you again?" And he's like, "I'm Bobby Valentine." I'm like, "Oh, okay, that makes sense." But that that's the dream, right? Like you you're your manager for a couple of years. You maybe I don't know if you played or not. And then you just post up in your own bar and just like you know get doted on and have everyone kind of just you know, oh my god, is that is that Bobby V? And you can just like live in that for the rest of your life. That that that's what I want to do. Actually, I remember what year it was, and I don't know the the numerical year, but I know it was the year after he tried to manage again for the Red Sox. <laughs> because I remember that uh, we were very surprised that he was there. It was right after he got fired. So yeah. that was pretty entertaining. Um, 
Yeah, I mean the Vikings. Let's start about the Vikings because they're five and one right now. Uh, what are your thoughts on them this year? All right. So first off, you know, going into the season, I could not have been higher. You know, Adrian Peterson. Maybe you know personally, I'm not very thrilled with uh, some of the things that he's done in his past. But you know, he's our running back, and it, the year long suspensions passed. So I was just you know excited to see you know him, one of the best running backs in the league, um, one of the best running backs potentially ever. And then you got Bridgewater, who, you know, this was really the year that they were going to make the leap, that Bridgewater was going to make the leap. Um, you know, a non-contact knee injury worse than anything anyone could ever imagine. I mean, I'm still reading things that say it's it's still 50-50 whether he comes back to play football. And then, you know, AP tearing whatever the hell he tore, you know, week two or whatever it was. Things got pretty soft pretty quickly for me. But I'll say, you know, this defense is transcendent, and this defense is is unreal. Um, the, the, it's, it's a lot of young guys with a lot of great talent. You know, a lot. It's the you know the first round picks they've had for years have sort of you know finally come to um, fruition over these past you know a couple of games, even you know into last year. So I'm much higher on the team than I was. You know, I'm I'm realistic that you know I don't think Sam Bradford is 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 just fine, and I think he's doing better than I could have expected, but I'm tempering my expectations, especially after last game, uh, after last week where we got just destroyed by the Eagles. But, you know, that said, I kind of feel like this whole season's on bar, on, on you're playing with house money at this point after your top two, you know, franchise players get destroyed at injury. So I'll take it right now. I mean, you know, like, a lot of people who have been on this podcast before and who listen are huge Teddy Bridgewater supporters. He was definitely my guy in that draft class, and Derek Carr looks pretty sensational. But I think that Bridgewater could have made a fairly similar jump uh, if he had been healthy this year, and the injury is just super rough. But I actually kind of think that the Vikings are a little bit better with Jarek McKinnon coming in because he's super athletic. I think that uh, he's, like more athletic than 99% of running backs in the NFL based on his numbers at the combine. And Adrian Peterson is a very, very good running back, but he wasn't quite as versatile as McKinning can be. And, you know, the offense just has to be good enough. And the mckinnon Aziata running attack, Kyle Rudolph's been really good this year. I think that they're going to end up winning their division. It seems pretty clear that they're the best team because the Packers have really regressed. So I think that they're going to end up making this run in the playoffs this year. Yeah, I, look, I hope so. After last season and that, that Blair Walsh miss to end it, I'll, I'll take anything that'll forget that'll make me forget that. You know, I've, I've, I've heard a lot of people say that McKinnon, that they like the mckinnon out of backfield better. You know, I, I definitely get it. And you might be right. It's just sort of one of those things I like. It's sort of the things I like are, are the things that are leaving, are moving out of style in sports. I like the bruiser back that, you know, can get 30 touches a game. And I, you know, just like I like the, you know, the big bruiser, seven foot, six, ten center in, in a basketball that just kind of sits in the paint and just dunks on people. You know, those, those two things are kind of moving away. And it's, even if it's better for your team, um, even it's better for my team to see, to see them move away from that. It's, it's the stuff I, it's the stuff I like. So I always get hesitant when I see them move away from that. But I think, you know, the, they definitely complement each other real well. So I'm hoping that, uh, McKinnon can sort of pick it up. He's doing well this season, but I think he could, he, he could do a little better. Uh, and yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll see what happens. The Minnesota basketball team is a pretty good center. Although I guess he's more yeah. of that new breed of center. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so no, that's, that's true. That's the thing is interesting enough is that my Minnesota fandom starts and ends with the Vikings. I like, you know, I'd like to see the Timberwolves win or I'd like to see the Twins win, but like I really don't follow them as much as it's just really a one off for me, which is funny. Good luck seeing the Twins win. I'm not sure that's going to happen yeah, well, anytime soon. Yeah. I'm, I'm in DC. I'm a Nats fan now, so I get a little more hope. But eventually, we're all sitting on the couch uh, come October. So whatever. Rooting for? Are you rooting for the Cubs or Cleveland? <sighs> so. I'm rooting for the Cubs because I went to school. I went to, I went to Northwestern outside Chicago. So like all my friends were Cubs fans and, you know, I went to Wrigley. I went to like eight games a year once, you know, junior and senior year at least. So, you know, I like the Cubs in the, in that sense, you know, they're, it's sort of a hometown tie. It's not a hometown tie, but it's, you know, like college town tie. And, and frankly, you know, I have about 50 or so college friends that would all collectively just like, you know, lose their shit if they won or I guess lose their shit if they lost too. 
in just a different way. So I'd, I'd, I'd rather see the collective mass of people I went to school with happy. Not to mention, I think, you know, just we can, to get past that, you know, to get past that and have the Cubs have won a World Series, like it's, it's fun to be the, it's fun to have them as the, as the joke of the rest of the MLB, but like eventually let's move on with it. So, you know, maybe they get this one, get it off their back and move on. But I kind of feel bad for the, for the Indians because I'm not rooting against them by any stretch. You know, they haven't done anything wrong to me. It's a nice, it's a fun team. Um, super talented team too. I've got nothing against them. So, nah, I guess I'm still, still rooting for the Cubs. And as we're taping this podcast, things are looking good in game two, but I guess we'll, see what happens, and maybe I'll look like an idiot when this actually publishes, and they lose. Yeah, you just jinx them pretty badly, so when yeah. the Cubs lose, um, you can blame Ben. I, my Cleveland fan friend actually told me that after the Cavs winning this year, and the Indians looking like they have a chance to win, if the Indians won, he like wouldn't know what to do with himself. Because oh, he's yeah. so not used to winning that he's just like, how do I celebrate without Seeming like a douche, like it's really hard to do. It's a <laughs> yeah, really no, hard I thing know. to do. I've got a, one of my good buddies is a is a cat is a Cleveland fan, grew up in Ohio, and he's just you know freaking out about this whole thing. That said, you know, I know Ohio hasn't gotten one in a while. They don't need to win in they don't need to win in bunches. I feel like you know the Cavs the Cavs are good enough for me right now for them, so I don't feel too bad if they lose this one. I will say I do have a soft spot every time I look at Progressive. Uh, I think Progressive feels what they even call it now. I forget who sponsors what at this point, but um, we'll probably get back to this later. But I was um, I was covering the RNC, the Republican National Convention. It was done. Uh, they held it in the basketball court, which is like right next to the baseball field, and they kept the the baseball field within that secure perimeter, so no one could really go in unless you were a journalist or like attending the convention. So about an hour each day, I turned the like third baseline into my my office, and I kind of just like sat on the third baseline, you know, pretty close up, and just you know put all my stuff out, and I was just writing and making calls out from from the bleachers or not bleachers from the seats over there, so. I do have a soft spot for Cleveland and a soft spot for that field for sure because it was awesome that they let us uh, hang out there. Well, that's really, really cool. That's awesome. Um, now you mentioned Northwestern. We're going to segue on to that. And right now, what are the 32 starting quarterbacks in the NFL's Northwestern alumnus, Trevor <laughs> Simeon? And just what are your thoughts as someone who went to college with him and watched him in college? And I wish- the fact that he is currently starting the NFL, did you expect this at all? I wish you could see my face right now. So first off, n- never really knew him. Seems like a nice guy. Um, a lot of the guys lived on my floor uh, sophomore year, but I never actually met him. He did almost run me over once in his car, but he, you know, he came to a stop at the, you know, as he was kind of going along and gave me a little wave. So you know, we're cool. We're cool. But um, I mean, I'm happy for the guy. I mean, listen, like. He was, I'm so very happy for him. You know, I think he looks a lot better than I was expecting. He definitely, you know, was not expecting him to be uh, a professional, you know, professional athlete at all. Um, He was not the best quarterback from the time I was there. He was probably not the second best quarterback by the time I was there. He probably was the third best quarterback on the roster, you know, his junior year, maybe sophomore year, whenever that was. Um, But like, hey, you know, more power to him. The kid obviously, you know, working his butt off and um you know to to get that far is incredible but you think about you know some of the 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 northwestern uh, quarterbacks that were before him it's shocking to me we all kind of joke um after that or when that draft happened they picked uh, trevor and we all freaked out and then they have uh, john elway going on tv talking about how like he really sees a lot of potential in this guy and all that stuff and we're just like well there's either it's one of two things here Either John Elway's a crazy person or like we just can, as Northwestern, just cannot manage a quarterback. I mean, the fact that he's now performing to a decent starter level is crazy to me considering he just like was fine at school. I think when he threw for four touchdowns, uh, Pat Fitzgerald, the coach at Northwestern was like, Hey, he never did that for us. And that, and that's just crazy to me that you could do that in the NFL after having just kind of like a, a fine, decent career. Who would you say was the best quarterback while you were there? Coulter? Oh, so Mike Kafka is a soft spot for mm-hmm. me because it's back to, you know, the things that I like that are slowly moving away from the game. Just the guy that throws 70 freaking times a game. I remember that. I played with him in NCAA. He was fun to play with. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, all he did was just you just you, you know that was our game plan was a spread offense and throw a hundred times to him and then it'd be third and long and we'd run a draw play and then we'd punt. That was how it went. Just every time, like throw for first two downs, then run a draw play, get one yard and punt. That was our offense. But like when it worked, it was awesome and Kafka was fantastic and he like got a couple looks and played a little bit for the Eagles. I think he started once when it was like that, like Sanchez got hurt or. Mike Vick got hurt around it. Someone got hurt and then someone else got hurt. It went to Kafka and he did like barely okay. And, you know, now I don't think he's in the league anymore, which is crazy because, you know, he, I thought he was a better quarterback than, than, than Trevor was in college. And, and Coulter was certainly fantastic, but I wonder, you know, I get why, I get why he didn't transfer over to the pros uh, more than I get why, uh, more than I get why uh, Trevor did. Yeah, I remember when Coulter came out, there was a whole big deal that he was, like, interning at Goldman Sachs while he was trying out for the Vikings. I think it was the Vikings, actually. Yeah, well, it was the Vikings. It's the same thing that happened with Simeon. Simeon had a job offer at some, like, real estate firm or something. I don't know. Because these kids, you know, they're not expecting to get drafted or anything. They're not expecting to make the team. I think Coulter made a practice squad or something. I don't know. It's crazy. I mean, these Northwestern alumni and and smooth transition, um, which I said aloud, uh, you also graduated from Medill, which is one of the best journalism schools in the country, pretty much. Um, lots of amazing alumni. So I know a lot of people who listen to this are interested in journalism or want to get into journalism or, or just want to know um, sh- sort of who they can talk to. So can you maybe give us uh, some insight into what your trajectory was at Medill uh, over your four years there? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was a fantastic school. I learned a ton and like, you know, the peer group is awesome and the kid, the guys that are there with you, the girls that are there with you are just fantastic. So, you know, they make that, you know, make it even, even better. And you see a lot of them go on to do some awesome stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I just sort of, you know, I came into college wanting to do journalism. I did sports for a little while, you know, uh, did sort of, you know, about a, a, a quarter. We, we do academic quarters. So I probably did about a quarter, um, at each um, at each like campus publication, started covering sports, did radio for a little while, did a, uh, did like the halftime and post game free game show for a little while on radio. Then I think kind of moved over to politics, um, like junior year, um, there. And from there sort of did, you know, some spent a, spent a little bit of time at the Austin American Statesman covering the Texas legislature there. Um, and I will give a brief plug and say, if you haven't been to Austin, you should book a flight in the next couple of weeks or months if you have to, because it's the best city I've ever been to. Um, and then after graduation, kind of just moved to D.C. and started the, the job grind. So uh, Austin 2012, was that when Wendy Davis happened? Or is that so, yeah, later? It, it was when Wendy Davis happened. Um, she was – so it was early 2013 was when she – or sorry, it was mid-2013. It was that June. Um, I was not there because I was just there for a placed internship that lasted three months. And for those of you that care about local so – state governments, which I'm sure – sorry, Ethan, if people are starting to turn off uh, oh, the podcast. Everyone loves but, state governments who listen. All right. Is, well, so if you're down for state governments, Texas is a crazy one because they only meet once every two years, and then they only actually do stuff for six months of those two years. And then they adjourn in June, you know, job well done. And then for the first three of those months, you can't even pass bills unless you pass them with, you know, almost unanimous consent. So basically that gives you a three-month time every two years to, you know, run what would be one of the largest countries, you know, in the world if it was its own country. Um, so I left in I left an end of March for my program, and then Wendy Davis did her, um, you know, famous or infamous, famous or infamous, depending on who you are, uh, filibuster. Um, I think it was in June. It was right when I left college, which was funny because I had like covered all that stuff in the in the build up and had you know we, we known that this was going to be a big deal. But then you know, right as you start getting in the mix of things um, and they start being able to actually pass bills, I leave. So. It was kind of anticlimactic for me, but it was a fun time to be down in Austin for sure. Texas legislature seems so crazy. I didn't even know that um, Greg Abbott, who's their governor, right? Governor, yep. Yeah. He was the I attorney general. I was in the wheelchair. I had no yeah, idea yeah. he was he in the wheelchair. To, 
Yeah, um, he uh, uh, he has a terrible story. He was actually like studying for the bar exam or studying for law school, one of the two, because he's a lawyer, um, and was just running. You know, he would study for you know a million hours and then go for a run to clear his head and study again. He was going with his uh, with one of his study partners and running, and a tree just fell on him as he was running. Didn't hit his uh, running partner, but just fell right on him, and he's been in a wheelchair since. Yeah, I had no idea that. There's an entire backstory. I was talking to someone about it who also lives in Austin, and apparently, like, there was this whole controversy when Wendy Davis uh, was running that she used some really inflammatory rhetoric in some of her ads about Abbott and his disability. And uh, Texas politics seems super fascinating. I, I'm sure that that was, even though it's a little bit anticlimactic at the end, I'm sure that there were some fascinating things to be learned there. Um, before we move on to politics full time, I do have to ask you about who from your Medill family, would you say has been really helpful to you in terms of getting you started? Who are the good people in the business who've really been good to you? Huh, that's really interesting. You know, I'm trying to think of names specifically. Um, I mean, frankly, like, it's one of those things where, you know, if you just hear, if you know, if, if you know of someone who that was at school with you um, and, you know, you reach out to them, they're always open to talk, um, to talking. Um, you know, my, the way that I kind of went through the, um, my sort of job process and things like that. Um, I didn't really rely as much on Northwestern contacts as much as sort of other people I had met along the way. But I think what's really, you know, fantastic about, uh, about, uh, Northwestern is, as I know, is about a bunch of other schools too. I mean, this is just the alumni network and the fact that people are just so willing to the, you know, when they hear you have that shared connection, they want to help. And also, you know, they, they just want to hear what school was like, you know, when you were there, cause it's so, it was something that was meaningful to them. And it's something that was meaningful to you, but, you know, it's always interesting kind of talking about, um, you know, what you may have done, you know, how, how things were, were when you were there, which might have, you know, been five years before or five years after the, the that person was there. So I think it was one of those things, but for me, there hasn't, wasn't necessarily one person that I relied on, but everyone that I've met in DC and, and across the country, really, you know, when you, when you have that shared connection, they're always like super excited to jump on it. Yeah, so I guess not every Medill alumni is like uh, alumnus is like Darren Ravel. That's the most important takeaway. Oh this yes, story. yes, that that is the most important takeaway. That we are we are not all Darren Ravel. <laughs> we are not all Darren Ravel. Um, yeah, so let's transition to we society. Promise. So many things to talk about. Um, of course, we're a couple weeks away from the election. Probably, I mean, this is probably the most pivotal election um, in my lifetime. And I know that – could you maybe give some insight into what you're doing in 2012 for that election too? Yeah, yeah. I mean so – I mean so I was a senior in college uh, in 2012. So obviously I kind of had a different perspective and yeah. uh, spent my election day kind of, you know – I spent my election eve, let's say, on the couch a little bit incapacitated after a long night. But, uh, you know, it was – 2016 is just it's it's an election unlike none other. I mean, this is I always joke that like you know what what is a history book going to look like from this year? You know, like it's going to have a lot of you know it's going to have a lot of inappropriate things in it for sure, and it's going to have just like things that people are going to look back on this and you know hopefully it's an outlier. Like hopefully we 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 go back to you know a little bit more calmer elections. This is this is fun, but I think most people, even for the sake of the country or for the sake of you know journalists uh you know sanity maybe we'll go back to a more a more calmer election um than this but no it's it's been quite something i mean you know you have wall-to-wall coverage of it which is fascinating and i will say that you know i think it, it, the good thing is it's getting more people involved and getting more people you know watching the election like i have friends that didn't really care about politics at all you know whether it's the 2012 election or you know until now, they sort of were just like, I don't care. This is just, you know, whatever. But, you know, for whatever reason, you know, depending on what side of the aisle they're on there, they come from it from different perspectives. But like, this has been sort of a, an awakening for a lot of people. And I think that's a really interesting thing. You know, you when, when I look back and get kind of doom and gloom about how things have gone, at least, you know, that I think is one one solid takeaway that you can look back that people are really, really interested in getting, you know, and, and learning more about this, which is, you know, which is good. Yeah, it's actually kind of funny because we are totally opposites in terms of timing. Because in 2012, I was in school, but I was also running the news department of a commercial radio station in Rhode Island. 
and so we were covering the election, and that was the longest uh, six months, I'll say, of my entire life. Um, oh, I'm sure. Rhode Island. I'm trying to think. Rhode Island 2012. Not really – you guys at least didn't have too much at the federal uh, – sorry, at the at the state level, right? So you was really just mostly on the presidential? Yeah. Um, we did have some state things going on. There was some weird uh, – Rhode Island politics are interesting. There's a yeah. lot of old money, and there's a lot of corruption that you can find out if you dig deep enough. And that was also, I believe, right around the time when um, there was – it was the very beginning of this new awakening uh, to the plight of a lot of African Americans with police violence. So yeah, there was – I think Trayvon happened the summer of that election. Trayvon Martin that shooting. right. I think so. Yeah. And I, think that's I, right. I remember was I was able? covering that and there were all these rallies and it was the most deadly summer in Providence that in years. Uh-huh. Um, that was the summer right after Kurt Schilling bankrupted his video game company. Oh, so yeah. It was all of that and then the election. And there was just so much to do. And, <laughs> I, but it's funny that you mentioned like the lack of activism. I would say that in terms of emails we got and calls we got and interest on stories and whatnot, the election was probably item number four uh, yeah, after right? Kurt Schilling and general just like uh, shootings that were happening. And sure. uh, yeah, it was, it was a weird summer, but we sent people to all the conventions. I was actually at the DNC, which was crazy. Oh, um, nice. We sent someone to the RNC. We had people embedded on election night and I still have recorded. I was on air when Obama clinched. And I got to announce it, and that was really cool. Oh, um, that's fun. I'm, that's that's something you got to keep forever. Yeah, that is. Maybe I'll embed it, or if somebody wants to listen to it, I can put it on Twitter <laughs> or something. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it like if 2012 was crazy, I can only imagine how crazy 2016 has been, especially because I mean, I'm I'm sure you get like press releases every minute, and you're on all these email lists, and you're getting tons of like calls and I'm sure that like, like what is a day right now on the trail for you? Yeah. Well, so first off, as you mentioned, you know, all these emails and my email address is essentially like worthless at this point. I've got 71,000 unread emails cause I get like 400 a day. And like, what are you going to do? You know, I'm not going to read all these 400 and something emails a day as they come in. Cause I've got other stuff to do. So, you know, yeah, no, it, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you know, most days, you know, are waking up, looking at your phone and hoping that nothing happened overnight. Like, you know, some of the most frantic mornings, you know, when when Donald Trump fired um, his um, when Donald Trump fired his campaign manager first go in the office and you know, you're planning to have a, you know, a relaxing morning where you're sort of catch up on stuff or do research. And, you know, all of a sudden eight o'clock hits and that happens. So you got to scramble and do that. I remember um, they brought I think Trump either had Paul Manafort, his campaign chairman, either quit or was when he brought on the new management of the Breitbart and um, the Breitbart guy and um, Kellyanne Conway, the new campaign manager. I think it was you know it was one of the things surrounding that change that happened basically overnight. And I woke up and opened my phone, and you know I'm you know sleeping my eyes. I'm still like half asleep, and it's like oh someone needs to get on this now. And so I go from you know being in bed to having a story up in like 15 minutes and it's, 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 it's a little bit stressful and you know, that I will certainly be happy uh, when that stuff ends. But I mean, it's, it's just been, you know, a lot of, of, a lot of just being ready for anything. You can't really plan out too far in advance because everything continues to, you know, change so quickly. So over this entire process, what have been some of the most, I guess the best word to use is surreal. Um, what, what have been some of the most surreal experiences for you on the trail? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I haven't been on the trail as much as, um, some, some other of my friends. Um, but I think, you know, the whole RNC was pretty surreal. You know, I'd never been to a convention, to be honest. You know, um, this is my first presidential election. So, um, had never done that before. It was really exciting. And, you know, it was a really interesting one to cover because, you know, we were basically, you know, there was like, there were fights on the floor, not like actual fights, but like rule fights on the floor. And this convention that was typically like, uh, you know, every other year, it's a, it's just a pep rally for your candidate. It means nothing. And like, it means nothing as far as like the determination of what actually happened. 
happens. You, you come in with 2012 with Mitt Romney and everyone's just ready to sing Kumbaya and, you know, have a bunch of speakers, you know, just, you know, talk about, you know, what is it like you built this or whatever the, you know, dumb cat, you know, catchphrase they had was, but the, the Trump convention's different because you've got people on the floor that are actively trying to stop his nomination. You've got Mike Lee, a senator from Utah, you know, conservative that a lot of people support and a lot of people, you know, think is like a, you know, I mean, he's, he's a big deal in the conservative movement. And you've got Mike Lee, you know, on the floor of the, um, on the floor of the convention hall trying to, you know, he would probably argue and not say stop the Trump, but at least, you know, try and, you know, put in stumbling blocks to the, to the Trump nomination. And that's, it's fascinating. And then, you know, that whole thing was crazy. You know, being on the floor of the convention hall when, when Trump was accepting the nomination was surreal because you always had that thing in the back of your mind, like, this isn't going to happen. Like, you know, someone's going to pull something at the last minute and, and it's going to, you know, descend them into chaos, but like, it's, you know, it might not work. Um, it might not make him the nominee. You always had that possibility, but sitting there and having it sort of hit you that like, oh, this is this is actually going to happen, and that's exactly what this next couple of months is going to be like. It, it was pretty nuts. And then I think you know the I don't know how much everyone you know followed the convention so hard, but you know when Ted Cruz didn't endorse, um, every, you know obviously people were pissed. And then the next morning, I went to his um, Texas delegation breakfast, and you know having someone. Be, uh, having covered Texas, um, who also worked for the Dallas Morning News at one point, so I'm pretty familiar with the Texas. And like Ted Cruz is like, is a god there. If you're a conservative in Texas, they just like they they love Ted Cruz, or they loved Ted Cruz. And then you go to this breakfast with all the members of the you know all the delegates to the RNC, and they're screaming at him and standing up. And I mean, it like spilled out into the um, into like an adjacent room, and people were like about to have fistfights over the whole thing. I mean, two, you know, two delegates screaming at each other, you know, one like state reps screaming at each other and saying like, you know, one of them basically said, you know, challenged the other one to a fistfight. Like it's, it's just, it was insane stuff that you would not expect um, any election, but have sort of become a little more commonplace this go around. Sounds crazy. I mean, when Cruz didn't endorse, uh, that moment was really, really surreal. And then you have, I think Manafort like rallying up the New York delegation to 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 boo Cruz off the stage. That must have been crazy. Yeah, no, it was nuts. I mean, people were people were going absolutely crazy in that convention hall. And like, you realize, like, oh, this is a thing. And, you know, I talked with some people earlier that day, and you know, I was we were pretty confident he wasn't going to endorse. You know, I talked to some people, and it seems like it seemed like that was the direction it was going. But you know, I knew they'd be pissed, but I didn't know they'd be that angry. You know, they. Maybe it was a little bit of optics, but, you know, and maybe people kind of fed into it. But, I mean, people were real upset. And I think, you know, you can probably my, – my guess would be considering, you know, that Cruz ended up deciding to endorse a couple of months later, he probably was not expecting that type of reaction. What would you say is something that people who wouldn't have attended a convention might not know about that you recognize as being interesting to you when you were at the RNC? Huh. I mean, well, first off, I think just sort of like, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, um, just the, the mass of humanity that comes into these cities is, is, is nuts. I mean, there's just so much going on and there's just, you, know, you can't like move when you're walking through downtown Cleveland. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, it's maybe another thing that I didn't, you know, I didn't realize was, you know, how ready everyone was for 2020, you know, not to say, you know, not that they were expecting Trump to lose by any stretch, but you see all these people who are using these delegation meetings, because basically the way that it works is, you know, obviously, you remember this from the primary process, you get delegates um, through, you know, you get a delegates um, allotted to you through the process, and then they're the ones that go on the floor and actually vote for them to be the nominee, something that usually doesn't matter, but this go around, you know, did. Um, but these are really, you know, you have people from Iowa, you have people from North Carolina, or sorry, New Hampshire, you have people from Nevada, South Carolina, you know, all the major, you know, primary states, all in one, you know, city. And if you're a guy like, you know, Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, or, or, you know, Scott Walker, governor from Wisconsin, people who are, you know, looking at a presidential bid in the future, I mean, they're, they're speak, they speak to every delegation they can in the hopes of basically, you know, auditioning for 2020. And they won't say it. And, you know, you ask them why they're there and they say they want to thank their supporters in Iowa. They want to thank their supporters in New Hampshire. 
But, you know, when someone rattles off a schedule of the first four primary states, it starts to make sense why they're there. And it's interesting that, you know, even at this party, you know, even this party convention where, you know, um, I think I don't remember what the posts were like back uh, in July, but if I remember correctly, I mean, they were pretty much a dead heat. I mean, maybe Clinton had a slight edge, but it was, so it's not that you're thinking, oh, man, like I got to protect myself for when the nominee loses, but like, oh, here's a great time where I don't have to fly and take time out of my day to go to all these, you know, early voting states, but I can, you know, get my get my name known in case I want to run for president. So that that, that was a interesting thing for me that I don't think I uh, was expecting um, until I had been to my first convention. I feel like there's been a lot of mixed reviews of how the media has covered this election in general. Uh, some think that maybe they focus too much on the wrong issues. Others might say that just the coverage hasn't been in-depth enough or has been a little bit slanted toward one of the candidates. Um, from a holistic standpoint, what do you think of the way that the media has covered this con- entire presidential season? Yeah, I mean, it's like the thing that everyone's got to reckon with when this whole thing is over. And, you know, I think, you know, there's, there's fair arguments for both sides. I think that, you know, on one hand, it's a vicious cycle where, you know, when, when the media covers the things that they think people are going to be interested in, and then they're, they're proven correct and they are interested in them, so then they keep covering them. Like, you know, Trump obviously got, you know, tons and tons more coverage in the primary than anyone else did because, frankly, he was the most interesting. And he was the one that, you know, was, wasn't, you know, everyone else was doing the same stump speech every day, you know, and it just basically changed the backdrop and it's the same speech. So if you're, a, you know, a cable news producer or a journalist or a, or a print writer, like, what are you going to do? You're going to write up the same trust or show the same stump speech for Marco Rubio every day or the same stump speech from Ted Cruz? You know, they, they, wanted to do, you know, they wanted to frankly put something on air that was going to be different and that could, you know, could go real well or could go real bad, but either way, it's going to be good television or it's going to be good, you know, it's good, good for your, for your, for your paper. So I think that, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of problem there in the sense that like, you know, you can't totally blame the, you can't blame the focus on Trump at that time because he was the most interesting thing happening in that primary. Um, but, you know, I think ultimately, like, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to sort of, to, you know, denigrate the media at large. And I think that that's something that you're seeing, you know, with, you know, on the trail with Trump right now. He's, you know, it's the media at large is the problem and it's the rigged media. I mean, it, it's just, it's, you know, obviously that's campaign rhetoric and, you know, I don't think in private he would mean that, but, you know, it works for the rhetoric. But when you're talking about, you know, what, looking at the media, you know, it, it just depends on, you know, every, every own organizations has got to account for their own, you know, their own things. Um, and they've all done things differently. I mean, you know, a lot of, you know, Trump will point at the New York times being, you know, accusing them of being biased to him, but don't forget the New York times were the ones that broke the fact that Clinton had a private email address in the first place. So, you know, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's one of the biggest stories of this entire election. And we wouldn't have known it, but for the New York times. And then, you know, um, the Wall Street, you know, Trump um, was going on about, um, you know, the rigged media a couple of days ago and then, you know, would would shift over to talking about um, this recent Wall Street Journal story that um, found some donations from uh, from a Clinton ally to someone who um, was running for like a state office who was connected to the investigation into her um, into her um, private email server. So, like, you know, there's a, a lot of good journalism was done during this campaign and, and, and it frankly was on both sides. So, you know, maybe that's me being in my own bubble and, you know, getting defensive. And I think that, you know, it's certainly fair to say that there was a focus on Trump that with that probably, you know, well, that not probably helped him that absolutely helped him through the primary. Um, but that said, you know, there was still a ton of good journalism that was done. Um, and I think it just comes down to the bigger problems of, you know, where do you draw the line between public access and public, you know, public knowledge and also, you know, selling papers or, um, you know, or just, you know, or advertising or even at the, you know, the small, the lower level, you know, finding the things that are most interesting that are happening during this race and, and giving them to your audience, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. And I think that finding that balance of being both 
informative but also entertaining is is really really hard to strike and i think during this election it just so happened that one of the candidates was very bombastic and that attracted a lot of attention and i think that your take on on the struggle that a lot of these media companies had is really fascinating um and very valid so throughout this process for you what have been some of the things and i'm gonna give you time to to plug some stuff uh what are some of the things that you're proudest of having been a part of or having done throughout this election huh you know i gotta think back to like stories that i did and you know things like that um you know it's just honestly like you know being able to play some semblance of a role in this whole thing, however minor it is, is exciting. Because, you know, I grew up, like, I was a poli-sci major in college, and I wanted to do in journalism. But, you know, I've always been interested in politics, always been interested in in, in government. Um, and I don't know, just, you know, having – it's, it's really humbling, like, just having, like, having – someone read you that you don't know, you know, like having someone has sought out your story, whether it's, you know, by accident or on purpose, just like, you know, being able to, being able to play some small role in, in bringing this crazy election to people has just been, has been really cool. Um, you know, right off the top of my head, I can't remember, you know, the stories that the sort of the stories that stick out, but just in general, it's just, it's, it's just been cool. Even, you know, kids from high school that I haven't seen in a while that were just like, that send me a message and say like, Oh, Hey, I was, I was reading this story and I didn't realize it was from you. Just, you know, it's, it's just, it's just cool to play some really tiny, tiny, tiny part in this like larger push. Um, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that sounds really cool. And I'll definitely make sure that, well, I mean, when this podcast comes out, uh, I will drop a link to <sighs> all your stories on the Hill so people can read it and get your perspective on this election. I think it. it's really Really fascinating. Good to have that perspective. Um, I have to ask one more question, and if you want to plead the fifth, you can. But I'm thinking about this Rembert Brown story that dropped when he was at the RNC, and he talked about these secret parties he heard about, the RNC nightlife. I don't know if you heard anything about these parties. Oh, I don't need to plead the fifth, but I'll take a really boring answer. So, well, <laughs> first off... That's like there's. I mean, that's what you do at these at these conventions, and that's another thing I didn't really realize until I got there. Was like the conventions all good and great and whatever, and people like that. But basically, right when the speakers are over, everyone goes to these parties. They're like everyone. There's a million of them. They're all sponsored by you know whatever lobbying group or whatever you know whoever just basically wants to be you know known for whatever reason over over in Cleveland or, you know, I assume in Philly as well, but I'm sure it was in Philly as well. I just wasn't there. Um, I mean, they were crazy. They were huge. It was anything, anything from, you know, like a warehouse party, you know, kind of a little more on the DL type stuff or, you know, massive concerts with like Third Eye Blind and, and Kid Rock um, did one concert that I was really mad I couldn't get to. Um, but, you know, honestly, I had, we had this problem where, you know, I'd stop, I'd finish working at like 1130 at night. And then we had, uh, there's, you know, there aren't enough hotels in in Cleveland to have everyone there. So, you know, we were staying about an hour of drive away from the convention center. So at 1130, I finished work and then you're faced with this question of like, do I stay out and then Uber home an hour you know, at like two in the morning and then turn around and, and be ready to go by seven thirty in the morning. Like I just couldn't do it. And maybe that's cause I'm lame. And I have other friends that certainly did go out and party. And especially the ones that were closer, um, were able to go and, you know, have a good time and, and party till the wee hours in the morning. But I, I honestly, like I will unfortunately because and lamely say I went to none and I had a like a couple invites like certainly not connected so I didn't have the cool invites had a couple like the, the concerts that I really wanted to go to just just 1130 hits and you've been working since seven and you're just done and just want to go pass out that's very fair I, I will say that if you had gone to those parties and then tried to expense the ubers based on trying to cultivate sources that would have been a ball of new <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, you, you, like, you could have in the sense that, like, you had to get back somehow. So, like, that would have been fine. But it's just, you know, I just couldn't – I don't know. I just – I can't do that, you know, four-hour, three-hour turnaround. I was already sleeping, like, five hours every night, best case. And mm-hmm. that was, you know, 
not drinking and not partying. So it's the idea of, you know, three hours and, and being drunk when you get home, just like I couldn't do it. But, you know, more power to everyone else that did. Yeah, that, that's fair. I wonder which lobbies would throw the best parties, though. I have to oh, think about well, that. Well, I'm sure the, the, the alcohol beverage lobby would probably yeah. be the one that uh... – <laughs> Yeah, third eye blind, though. Third eye blind. That's third one name I didn't expect to hear in Did you read about this? Third eye blind was this whole deal. They, like – they, by on purpose, didn't play any of the songs from the 90s, and they only played their new album as, like, a protest to Republicans. <laughs> Oh my god, that's amazing. And then they like people were like chaining and screaming at them and they were like basically like, F you, like we can do what we want and just like they didn't care and they didn't play any of their songs. I think they played like one at the end or something. But they didn't play they just you know were angry and decided like screw it. You know Third Eye Blind, that's that's pretty interesting. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna stay on the center line there, but that's pretty cool. Um <laughs> Yeah, so let's move on to the final portion of the podcast, and this is about DC in general. Um, first, I have to ask, what's it like living in DC? Because my brother went to college in DC at American, uh, so oh. I've been there a couple of times, and we have some family who lives in the area, but I, I've never lived there for an extended period, so what's it like to live in DC? So here's the thing, I like it a lot. Um, I think it's, it's becoming a little bit grating with the election just because everything is so politically focused. Um, and the election sometimes, this election particularly is one that you kind of want to like take some air from and it's a little bit tougher to do. But overall, like, I, I love the city. I think it's great. Um, it's small enough that, you know, you can master it in not too long of a time, but it's big enough that there's still a lot going on. I mean, still like, you know, a lot of great like ethnic food, um, a lot of, you know, really cool neighborhoods to explore. Um, I've, I've loved it here. Um, I couldn't have been happier with the actual city itself. Um, it's also got the, like, a, maybe this is, you know, having grown up in Connecticut, like an hour and a half from an airport, but it's got such a great airport experience, you know, <laughs> for, for all that, you know, DCA, people don't love it, but, you know, just the fact that I can get on the metro from my house and be at the, you know, be at the airport in 30 minutes is pretty great, but I will say the metro itself is a nightmare. So, you know, that ends up making it a little bit tougher to live here. That fact that there is no, you know, reliable public transportation, um, or there are very little reliable public transportation, but no, other than that, uh, I, I think it's, I think it's been great. I, I, I love being here. I probably, you know, don't necessarily see myself here forever, but glad to have been there. And I have to ask, do you have a car in DC? I do not have a car. You don't really make car money on a journalist salary. <laughs> That's fair. And and that, that is the thing about DC. Like after trying to drive there, um, I've never been more scared for my life driving than in DC. Oh, it's, it's absolutely miserable. I mean, the path of, the traffic is brutal because it's, it's, it's this like mid, it's this small cities that grew quickly, but you know, the roads were made back when they were small. That's those are the ones that kill you. Like when I grew up, when I was in Austin, you know, it, there's just like one street that goes down the whole downtown or two streets that go to the whole downtown. So, you know, my five minute drive from work would be like 45 minutes sometimes because it's this city that just bloomed in size, but doesn't have any infrastructure to, to handle it. And that's like a little bit of the DC problem is like, it's such a big, it's just, there's so many people in the city now, but that said, they're just, you know, the roads weren't made for the amount of people. And the other thing about DC is that uh, the people who visit it oftentimes are not from there and do not know how to navigate the city. And yes, exactly. It's just ugh, not yeah, fun. It's, it's I, kind of a nightmare. I was there uh, for my I, brother's graduation, and we almost got hit by like four cars. That's not right. Or like a tour bus of people too. Like that's the other thing. There's tour buses every you know that pull over to the side and stop every like two blocks. So it's, it's just the whole thing's a nightmare. So I'm I'm very happy to not have to drive, and I'm very happy that I just recently moved to a walk uh, walking distance from work. That's awesome. So are you a House of Cards guy? Um. So I I like watching it. I actually haven't gotten around to the new season just because I've been you know I'd say I say I've been busy, but like. I've watched a bunch of other television in the time. I just like, so I've not, I, there's no excuse. I just, you know, I liked it, but haven't gotten around to, uh, to this new season. So, so don't, don't spoil it for me, even though I probably deserve it after, you know, it's almost been a year. I'm not going to spoil it too much. <laughs> I just have to ask, um, when you look at what has happened in House of Cards, at least in the episode that you've watched, 
how realistic do you think it is in depicting DC? Maybe at an exaggerated level, but still, how realistic do you think it is? So I think there's the there's the group of people who are super perf- you know, um, you know, goal oriented is the nice way to put it, or like you know, career climbing or whatever you would call it. I think that stuff, you know. That, that rings true, but I think, and I'm certainly not the first person to say this, but the much more apt show is Veep. Uh, is Veep. Like, it's it's much house of cards, that, like, long-term, long-planned, maniacal, like, thought gives everyone way too much credit. <laughs> that That is very well said, especially knowing our politicians. Um, yeah, like, I mean, that's the thing, like, you read these, like, you know, and I hate to, like, you know, capitalize on, you know, and people's hacked emails, because that stuff sucks, and, like, I, you know, I would never want that to happen to me, but it's just funny, like, you read these, like, hacked emails, like, on of things like that, and you're like, oh, like, they're just as, you know, they're just trying to figure this out, just like, you know, everyone else is, like, no one's, like, yeah, like, people have these long-term plans, and people are certainly, like, you know, but at the end of the day, like, you see a lot of the just bubbling stuff that 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 made veep so funny kind of one of the reasons it makes it so funny is it's like not that too, it's not that far from the truth one of the shows that uh it started off really good and then toward the end got kind of off the rails it was science fiction so i guess that makes sense but have you heard of the show brain dead no i haven't is it on a network or is it like it was on cbs i think the season just ended but it takes place in dc and it it, the main character is this woman who works for her brother who is a senator, I believe, or a representative, I don't remember. But essentially, he's a Democrat. They're trying to broker like deals with the Republican senators. And then there's also these bugs that start entering people's ears and eating their brains and making them like – Isn't that like Animorphs, basically? A little bit. Like, I, that was definitely what originally drew me to it. Um, but <laughs> – it was a little bit like that, and it, it had this really cool combination of, like, DC politics and also science fiction. It was only, yeah. like, 12 episodes long. I recommend that people watch it. I thought it was really good, but that was just one of the things that kind of reminded me a little of how some people feel uh, Congress is like in terms of some of the inability to get things done. Well, yeah, I mean, there's definitely there's definitely that. I mean, and that's why... I was saying to a colleague today that I'm not really clear that after the election things get more calm. I think they probably, you know, get even more ridiculous if that's possible. But hey, I guess we'll I guess we'll see. Well, I have to ask it, and we'll another political question. But this Merrick Garland thing, when is this going to stop? Well, I can't believe they're going to make it to the election. Well, they're, so they're going to make it to the election. Like that's they're going to make it to the election. There's a hundred percent chance of that. Well, I guess you know there's only two weeks, so obviously they're going to make the election. They're, um. That you're, you saw, so this, we're taping this on Wednesday, not to, you know, give the, give away the tool of the shirt, the, the tricks of the trade, and you can edit that out if needed. But so we're taping this on Wednesday, and Ted Cruz today, um, said that, you know, there, there's, there's, um, there's justification to, um, keep the court, to keep that ninth seat empty for good, or like not for good, but for, you know, an extended period of time, you know, Basically saying, you know, we're not gonna, you know, we don't need to appoint someone if Clinton wins. Um, and you saw McCain a couple days ago, or maybe a week ago, say, you know, we're all united against. So like, we're the conservatives are all united against liberal justices. Like, you know, at some point, like, you know, there's a chance that this, you know, that this stays a lot. This goes into next term, and they end up butting into the whole issue of, you know, earlier on when they had said, you know, the next president has to decide. The next president has to decide. Well. If the next president's a Democrat and it's Clinton, um, it doesn't look like they're about to roll over and give her her choice, which is going to make this whole thing yet another ridiculous mess. Um, and we're going to have to see how that um, that gets dealt with. I mean, you could also have, you know, if the Democrats win a majority of the Senate, you know, they could start messing around with the rules to make it easier for them to do for them to confirm justices and the whole thing could kind of just like go off the rails real quick and there's a lot of different ways for it to go off the rails <laughs> it, it just seems so weird to me it's like it's in the constitution I, I don't understand how they can't appoint another justice but we'll see how much longer it goes for um a couple more quick questions before i let you go just predictions nothing too crazy i promise um the first one i have to ask about is Evan McMullen. So this is a guy who has all of a sudden gotten a lot of ground in certain states, especially Utah. Do you think that he wins Utah? So I've been thinking about this. So 
smart money is no. Like, smart money is he won't win Utah because you have to – you see this in polls all the time where the third party gets, you know, the, it's really attractive to vote for the, for the third guy, you know? If you're not – like, if you don't like the first two, it's, oh, yeah, I'll definitely vote for the third one. I'll definitely do it. I'll definitely do it. And then, like, when push comes to shove – they, you vote for one of the two candidates that's going to win the election, you know? Like, so the, the smart money is he will not win it. But I'll say, just to get on record and, you know, mix things up a little bit, I'll say he does. And I'll tell you, you know, my, the reason I think that there's a chance is that, you know, there's a really high percentage of uh, Mormons, obviously, in Utah. And, and this, and a lot of the negatives about Trump really you know, hit home to the Mormon community. I mean, this is a, it's a more conservative um, community when it comes as far as, you know, you know, issues, you know, I guess, you know, sexual issues for lack of a better term. Um, you could, you see them get really, you know, turned off by issues like the, like um, some of the stuff that Trump's been facing. And also the, um, you know, you speak to a lot of people in Utah and they bring up that the Muslim ban that he proposed in, I think it was November or December, um, it's since been sort of rolled back into a ban on um, on immigration from certain countries um, with a history of terror. But so either way, um, they point to those, they point to that as a, um, as something that really doesn't sit well with them because, you know, Mormons have been discriminated against for a while and, and they get concerned about that. So I think the smart money is still on Trump winning it because ultimately, like, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, people tend to come home and vote for one of the two candidates. But I will throw a wrench in and in my long-winded answer say uh, I'll give McMullen that state. So maybe one person per party. And you mentioned a couple of Republicans, but 2020 – 2024, um, they're not too far away. And I feel like last election cycle, um, now looking back on it, really the candidates were pretty established by the time we were in 2012. Like we knew sort of what was going on. Even in 2008, I guess maybe Paul Ryan wasn't really on the scene yet and a couple of the other guys, but Trump was definitely on the scene at that point. Um, Maybe one Republican, one Democrat. Who do you think – in eight years, we might be talking as candidates for office for the president of the United States. So, you know, it depends. Things get a little um, different. There's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of caveats. But yeah. I think you know, whether it's four or eight, I think you know one guy that so that you may see that didn't run in twenty sixteen that could have a real good shot um would be um cotton tom cotton i mentioned him a little earlier the guy from uh, arkansas i mean this is a veteran who won a tough tough senate race in, in a red state in arkansas but it was you know he beat an incumbent he's got the military veteran um he's got the you know hard on national security um chops and you know he endorsed trump when he won the nominee no nomination but has steered pretty clear of him so i think he can probably play both sides of that coin um pretty well um i think that you know he will, to, to borrow the phrase that I think most people hate from commentators, if you will, he'll make some noise come 2020 or 2024, um, is my guess. Um, and then with Democrats, it's interesting because, you know, Democrats, they have a smaller bench, and that's been like a real big issue for them um, for a really long time is that they just don't really have um, – a ton of young talent, a lot of, you know, Nancy Pelosi, um, obviously, you know, Speaker of the House. I mean, you can't see her running in, in four years or eight years, um, A, because she hasn't signaled that she wants to do that. But um, more importantly, you know, she's, she's getting older. Um, and same with, you know, Steny Hoyer, the, you know, number two in the House. And number, the poll House leadership is pretty old on the Democratic side, to be honest. So I think you probably have to look to, you know, people who are, you know, on the younger side. Um, and there aren't as many that are as talented. I mean, sorry, not as talented. That's, that's completely incorrect. Um, there aren't as many people that are as prevalent and as well known. So they'd have to make some big moves in eight years, but don't forget, like you can make some big moves in eight years, eight years before Obama ran, he was, you know, in the state house. Um, but so I think, you know, if my long winded wind up there, I think the easiest one is, is Cory Booker, you know, one of the younger senators in, um, one of the younger senators, um, but also, you know, one that has does very well with young voters. And, um, you know, you could see him sort of, you know, pitching himself as like the next Obama, the next, you know, young, hip guy to run 
um, run for office by Democrats. I think that's fair. I mean, the person who I actually really thought was going to get some run in eight years, and now I'm sort of backing off her because I read some some kind of shady stuff about her, was Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii. <laughs> and Oh, Gabbard. That's a good point. Yeah, that was the one who I thought, yeah, she has a military background. She sort of, she endorsed Bernie at the DNC, which I thought oh, would no, be so good she for was progressive. Big, yeah, she was but a she big has some supporter. bad connections and some gun, some of her policies on gun rights, I think, are going to scare progressives. And she has some Adelson connections. So I'm a little, I hadn't read the Daily Beast story on her. It makes me a little bit more. Huh. So I haven't read that story. I'll definitely take a look. But I think that, you know, if you're someone that, you know, was 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 on the Bernie side, um, I'm not really sure. I think in eight years, Democrats, you know, will probably wouldn't hold that against you. Um, I think that could be interesting, depending on I, I don't actually I'm not as, as well read on her. So I don't know what, what that story is. But I would be um, I, I think that that if, if she stays um, in good graces with the Democratic Party, I think that, that could be a, a pretty interesting choice for sure. You know, if, if it was a Cotton Gabbard election, two veterans. Oh, that'd be nuts. That would be crazy. I mean, but think about it. We haven't had a veteran. Um, we, we, had, um, but we had Bush, um, who served um, a little bit, but, you know, obviously didn't serve in combat. I don't know how long it's been since we've had a combat veteran. That would be, you know, it'd be just sort of – I think that would be an interesting – I think it'd be really interesting for the country to have a combat veteran, especially a combat veteran of, um, I forgot if they were either Iraq or Afghanistan, but sort of the new wave of 21st century, you know, counterintelligence, you know, or, or counterinsurgency warfare. I think that'd be like really fascinating for, for the country to have someone with that background as, as the president. Yeah. I mean, McCain tried to run, but. Yeah. Yeah. But obviously, you know, his, his service was in Vietnam. You know, I just think the the idea of having, a veteran from the Iraq war or Afghanistan. I mean, obviously it probably wouldn't, you know, necessarily make, make the, make doves happy. I just think as far as just a, a historical thing would just be an interesting, would just be a very interesting thing for the country. I mean, I remember in 2000 that McCain was a candidate back then too. Oh and yeah. I, I just wonder what would have happened if he had won in 2000, because I think that what really hurt him was just Obama tapped into a cult of personality that really helped him. But a rock hurt him a lot, and I just wonder what would have happened if if he had a little bit more momentum before a rock, because he he was an interesting politician, an interesting guy. Yeah, no, I mean McCain for sure. I think you know it, it, as as we saw, we see many in most elections. It's very difficult to hold on to the White House for a third term, and that's why you know everyone. That's why Republicans were licking their chops for twenty sixteen against Clinton was that, you know, it's really tough to do a third term of the same party. So I think that, you know, whoever was going to win in 08 was going to have that that stacked against them. And then when the economy kind of, when the economy blows up like that, I think, you know, who, regardless of who is on that um, Republican side, it's, it's, it's a tough billing for them. Final question, and then I will let you go because, you know, you're, you have some time off now. I want you to get some sleep before anything. Yeah, I'm saying it's mostly that. sleep at this point. Maybe, um, maybe watch the rest of this Cubs game. So January 20th comes around or whenever the inauguration is. Yeah, the Obamas I think it's leave the 20th. Office, I believe it's the 20th. The Obamas leave office. What do you think that they end up doing after they leave office? Huh. What do they end up doing? Well, first off, they're probably, they've said they're going to stay here because their daughter um, needs to go through high school. So the boring answer is that um, someone – better than me reported, and I don't remember who it was, um, reported that he's actually, the president is going to go um, and start working on redistricting reform with Eric Holder, which would be quite interesting because you have this whole, you know, you'd have another friggin', you'd have a college ser- college uh, semester taught on redistricting and the importance of state legislatures on, you know, federal issues and things like that. Um, so it'd be really interesting to see um, if he does do that, which has been reported and I think even confirmed. I think it's it's what he is planning on doing with the political action committee. Um, so that's the boring answer. I think, you know, one, I, well, the one thing I'll say is the one thing that I don't think is going to happen is that, you know, there's a lot of talk about Michelle Obama and could she run ever. And, you know, it's obviously speculation. I've never met them, uh, never met the, met the family, but I would be shocked if that happens. I think, you know, all signals that I've seen um, from, you know, my 
not very intelligent vantage point have been that they're they're they're, they're done um, as far as elect politics go. And I I think even though there's a lot of you know clamoring for her to run for something, I'm sure she would win just about any race in Illinois she would want. But that said, I, I just don't think that that's that that's a possibility. Not a possibility. It's definitely a possibility. I think it's probable. Michelle didn't want to run for president in the first place. Like, yeah, she, she didn't want to run for Senate in the first place, if I remember that correctly. Yeah, she was just along for the ride. I remember the story that came out after he won the election about how they knew that Barack was ambitious enough to run, but um, Michelle was the one who really had to be convinced. And, <laughs> you know, I, the story is that I believe that she said to Barack that he can only run if he stops smoking. I bet that he is really hoping that he can start smoking again once he gets out of office. I bet he's waiting. <laughs> he's waited for eight years to be able to smoke again. And I'm sure that's what he misses the most about uh, having John Boehner as speaker. Uh, apparently that uh, the speaker's office was so smoky after uh, his term there that uh, Paul Ryan, who does not smoke, had to like bring in a whole cleaning crew um, to just like, you know, fumigate the place basically. You know what? That's, that's a really, really good little nugget to end this on. That was great. Um, <laughs> no, Ben Camisar, thank you so much. This was great. Where can people uh, read you other than the Hill? Are you anywhere else? Are you have any appearances coming up? Like what's going on? I am I am exclusively on the Hill.com, so feel free to to follow me there, or you can you know send hate tweets to me um, on Twitter, or you know do what it do. Those are probably the two places to find me. Yeah, the Twitter handle is at bcamisar, right? Yes, exactly. It's super right. super uh, compelling and interesting, but you know. Yeah, well, this was great. I, I learned a lot. I think this was awesome discussion. I hope that everyone listening liked it too. That is this week's edition of the Hammer Time Podcast. Until next time, we'll talk to you later.